Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning, especially as we come to the passage of the Transfiguration on this Transfiguration Sunday. And before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for Christ as he's presented to us in your word and Lord, we thank you for this passage and your promise of the gospel that we find in it. May these words that follow be faithful to your gospel. And may you apply them by your spirit to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the, the ancient philosopher Plato's famous allegory of the cave, we, we, we find an interesting situation. We find persons who are bound fast with chains in a dark cave. They're unable to move their neck. They can only look to the backs of the wall of the dark cave. But there's a, there's a fire that burns behind them, and against the light of the flames, there are puppets and shapes and silhouettes that cast shadows upon the wall at the rear of the cave. And these shadows moving and dancing on the wall are all that the cave dwellers ever see. And so these shadows are all that they believe exist. It's a dark world full of only images and very little light. Yet one of these bound persons escapes and he climbs out of the cave. He exits the dark world of shadows and enters the world of grass and ponds and trees and people and all the good things that are. But at first, this world illuminated by the brightness of the sun seems a dark world, darker than the cave, in fact. This man's eyes must adjust from the true darkness of the cave to the true light of the sun. And this will happen as his vision is 
strengthened. However, even here, there's one more movement. Plato writes through the voice of Socrates, and then I think at last he would be able to gaze upon the sun itself. But of course, just as before, to look at the sun, he will have to squint and shade his eyes. It too will at first seem dark. He will have to shut out the light to look upon the sun itself. The very source of light is quite literally blinding. Even now, our eyes are not strong enough for this. It's too much light. It's too dangerous. It will destroy the very faculty that light is for, our eyes. So much light appears to us as darkness. Nonetheless, this is the pattern, the progression that we are given from the darkness of the cave to the illumination of the sunlit world and finally to the sun itself. And this has remained a classic allegory through the ages. For Plato, it's a picture of the philosophical life where one eventually comes to look upon goodness itself, which is imaged here as the sun. But I believe this imagery also helps us cast an important light on our present passage. What we find in this passage is a kind of interplay between light and darkness and seeing, really and truly seeing. Christ leads his three disciples not just up a mountain, but what the text calls a high mountain. The disciples are going further up and further in than they have so far yet ventured. They're going to ascend to a new height of their knowledge of Christ. And as Peter, James, and John are with Jesus on this peak, we read, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Moses and Elijah also appear. We'll return to that later. And then we read, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Here, just as at Christ's baptism, we hear the voice of God speaking over Christ, identifying him as God the Son, as the one with whom the Father is greatly pleased and the one in whom the Father greatly delights. What does the Father bring into focus here? The fact that Christ is the Son, the Son of God. Christ, too, focuses on the fact that he is the Son. Jesus tells the disciples after the transfiguration, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Christ identifies himself as the Son of Man. And in both titles, Son of God and Son of Man, the constant is Christ's identity as the Son. Think, too, of the words of one of these very disciples, John. As John begins his own gospel, his own account of the life of Christ, John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And I believe that when John here speaks of seeing the glory of the only Son from the Father, he very much has his beholding of Christ's transfiguration in mind. And notice, John too draws attention to Christ as the Son of the Father. In all these ways, God the Father, Christ himself, and the disciples draw attention to Christ's identity as the Son. This sonness defines who Christ is. But what can this all mean? Well, this brings us to the question of what was actually seen in the transfiguration. Suddenly a veil is lifted in the three disciples. They see Christ as they have never seen him before. And what happens when the disciples behold Christ? Again, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Think about that. A bright cloud overshadows them. The adjective here translated as bright can also be translated as shining, radiant, illuminated, full of light. But the verb here translated as overshadow is described as follows in the standard New Testament Greek dictionary. To cause a darkening. The disciples find themselves immersed in luminous darkness, in bright shade, in shining shadow. How are we supposed to think about this? Well, I believe the best way to conceive this is actually what we find in Plato's allegory of the cave. Remember that as the escaped man moves from the dark cave to the outside world lit by the sun and finally to the sun itself at first, the light seems darkness. That which is luminous seems shadow. That which is shining seems shade. It's too much light. His eyes are too weak. And so light itself appears dark. I believe something similar is happening in this present passage. What they see, what the disciples see is too bright. It's too luminous. It's too shining for their eyes. And so the text tells us they were shadowed by light. They were shadowed by light. Of course, there is no real darkness here. As John himself will tell us in the letter of 1 John, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. However, so luminous is the light of Christ here. Again, we're told that his face shone like the sun, that Christ seems like darkness to our eyes. But again, Okay, what is it that they see? What is unveiled that is so bright that it seems dark? Remember, the Father, Christ himself, and the disciples, as voiced by John, focus upon Christ's identity as the Son. And so what they saw, I believe, is the divine person of the Son, the Son himself. But properly speaking, who is the Son? Well, the Christian God is the Trinitarian God, the God who exists as three persons. The one divine nature who exists in three personal modes of possessing 
the one divine nature. There are three distinct yet mutual personal relations by which the one God is the one God. And specifically, God the Son is the personal way of being God by receiving the one divine nature from the Father and turning back to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit. The Son receives and turns back in love. The Son receives and turns back in love. And this personal relation, this full actuality of loving movement, just is the Son. Imagine being so full of life and plenitude and fullness and love that you turn your whole being in love to another with overflowing rapture and delight. Imagine if your whole being was defined by one infinite and eternal returning of love to the infinite internal love that you have received from another. This is what it means to be the Son. As theologian Thomas Wynandy points out, we tend to separate and distinguish persons from their actions, from the things that they do. But this is because even in the ways that we show love to one another, we can't express all of our love with only one action. Here is one loving hug. Here is one loving word. Here is one loving deed. But all of these are only partial, they're only piecemeal expressions of my love for you. I can't express my full love for you with any one action because no one action can express every bit of who I am. And even if we could give all of our love, it would still be a finite, a limited love. It would be bound by the good limits of our finite humanity. But not so the Son. His very person is his very act of receiving and turning to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit. And we can go further. Remember that John, after witnessing the transfiguration, he tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son is the Word, is the divine Logos. He became incarnate in Christ Jesus, taking upon himself a human body and a human soul. However, before the Son became part of creation, John tells us that the Word was already intimately involved with creation. John famously begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Father, John tells us, speaks all of creation into being through the Son. And, and this creation is given life by the Holy Spirit. And this helps us connect the significance, the importance of Christ's title as Word and his title as Son. Augustine is helpful here. 
Augustine tells us that all of creation, which is made through the Son, the Son who is the Word spoken eternally by the Father, the Son who is the Father's spoken Word, whose effect in time is the created world, all of us, everything in it. What this means is that the Son is the proper pattern, the archetype for all of creation. The Son is like a mold that forms all of creation. Augustine tells us the Son is from and to the Father in love. And that means creation. Well, creation follows the same basic pattern. Creation is from and to God in love. The pattern of from and to defines both the being of the Son and the creation that's made through the Son. Paul tells us as much in Romans 11. For from God and through him and to him are all things. Creation's being from and to God is patterned after the Son's being from and to the Father. And so when the Son becomes human, the Son becomes what he has always been the perfect pattern for humanity. And so when the Son becomes human, absolutely he will live the perfect human life, turning to God in his every human action. Think about it like this. The sun is like a beautiful landscape, and humanity, we're like a picture of that landscape. When we are actually in the landscape, we see depth and width and height. We smell the leaves, we feel the grass, we taste the air, we hear the breeze. But when all of this is transposed onto a two-dimensional picture, yes, we see the resemblance, and yes, it is still beautiful. We see how the picture reflects the landscape. But we know that this is a picture of something far greater and far grander. We are the picture, and the sun is the actual breathtaking reality of this beautiful landscape. So then, what do the disciples see? They see the person of the sun. They see the pattern of which we, of which they, are the mold. They see the landscape of which we are only an image. They see the divine person in whom all things meet and in whom all things hold together. And we're not alone in seeing the Son, the Word, the Logos as the focus of this passage. Theologian John McGuckin He tells us the following about how the early church theologians of both the Western and the Eastern traditions read the transfiguration of Jesus. He tells us what the fathers, Greek and Latin, all concur in finding here is the glory of Jesus's very being as the eternal Logos. What the disciples saw was the Logos. The Word, the Son, that wonderful mode of being God that is from and to the Father in love. That wonderful mode of being God that patterns all of creation. They saw the Word who is the very grammar of the language of creation. They saw the very landscape, that wonderful homeland of which all creation is only an image. 
Or as Anglican priest and poet Malcolm Guite puts it in his sonnet on the transfiguration, the love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. The very love that holds all things in the world together, the very love that dances in creation's every atom, this is what the disciples saw. They saw the glory, the wonder, the brilliance, the joyous rapture, the fullness of being that is the Word, the Son, the Logos. They saw in Christ's face what another poet of the Christian tradition, Dante, describes in captivating verse in the final chapter, the final canto of his divine comedy. He writes, for now, my vision, as it grew more clear, was penetrating more and more the ray of that exalted light of truth itself. O oh, grace abounding in allowing me to dare to fix my gaze on the eternal light, so deep my vision was consumed in it. I know I saw the universal form, the fusion of all things, for I can feel while speaking now my heart leap up in joy. I felt my will and desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Language here, of course, is grasping at something it can't fully hold. I'm grasping at something none of us can fully explain. Because what we are straining to speak about here is the very word that only God the Father can properly speak. But nonetheless, this is what the disciples saw. The disciples saw the beautiful and wondrous person of the Son who is at the heart of creation. Who, in the words of Rowan Williams, is indeed the very heart of creation. We see a beautiful painting but what would it mean to see beauty itself? We see the performing of good and true actions. But what would it mean to see goodness and truth itself? What would it mean for what we take as mere abstractions, goodness, truth, beauty? What would it mean for them to have more weight, more reality, more realness, more substance than the things we simply describe as true and good and beautiful? What would it mean to see these supposed abstractions with such concrete, heavy reality that we ourselves feel like the ghostly abstractions? This is what the disciples saw. They saw the very truth that makes all true things true. They saw the very goodness that makes all good things good. They saw the very beauty that makes all beautiful things beautiful. They saw the sun. They saw the word. They saw the logos. But they were not the only ones who saw it. We find here also Moses and Elijah. And to be sure, Moses and Elijah in their persons... They represent the Old Testament as a whole. Through Moses, God's people are given God's law. Through Elijah, God's people were given God's prophecy. Moses and Elijah stand for the law and the prophets. And Christ himself in Matthew 22 refers to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. 
And so here we find in these two persons the representation of the entire Old Testament, which in its entirety points to Christ Jesus, the one who the disciples finally see clearly. To rightly read the Old Testament is to see the face of Christ in it. And of course, this is where God's people are to look to see Christ. We are to look to the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, to see Christ. And even more, both Moses and Elijah, they too perceive God on a high mountain, on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses makes the following request to God on this mountain peak. Please, show me your glory. To this, God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so God tells Moses, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. From there, the Lord does just this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Again, we find a cloud. And within this cloud, God is said to let Moses see his backside and he tells Moses his name. This is God's proclamation of his own character, which begins with the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. As for Elijah, he too perceives the Lord in a gentle and gracious way upon Mount Sinai. Elijah takes up residence in a cave, yet God calls him on to the face of a mountain. The Lord then passes before Elijah just as he did with Moses. Elijah encounters a strong wind that breaks off parts of the mountain. Then there is an earthquake and then a fire. But the Lord is not in any of these things. No, as God passes before Elijah, God is present to Elijah in the sound of a low whisper. What are we to make of these accounts? Well, just like the mountain of the transfiguration here at Sinai, the Lord presents himself to the senses, to the ears, and to the eyes of his servants. Even more, God is not perceived and beheld in a way that would kill these servants. Moses does not look upon God's face directly, nor is God present to Elijah in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. No, God gives himself to them in gentle and gracious ways that stoop down, that condescend to their condition. God shows Moses his backside. God passes before Elijah amidst a still, small voice, a low whisper. And as we'll see, this is exactly what happens at the transfiguration. To again quote Plato Socrates on the man who escapes the cave, I think he would at last be able to gaze upon the sun itself. Again, this is the ultimate goal, to look upon the sun itself. Socrates then goes on to equate the sun with goodness itself. 
The very same goodness to which all else, all other things owe their existence. Socrates says, He will find that the sun is the source of every visible thing and is ultimately the origin of everything previously known. But this, of course, is literally true of the light that shone from the face of Christ. Again, the disciples see the sun, the word, the logos. They see the very pattern and grammar and structure and love and joy that holds all of the universe together. The disciples truly are looking upon the source of absolutely everything that exists. And this is no allegory, but actuality. And when Elijah went out to perceive the Lord, he did not leave a metaphorical cave, but a literal cave. However, we must be careful here because this is still a mediated encounter, encounter that we find at the transfiguration. It is God's backside. It is God's whisper. It is God in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became the Son of Man. God tells us in no uncertain terms to look upon His face is to die. Yet here the disciples look upon the face of Christ Jesus and live. This is because to look upon the backside of God is to look upon Christ. To hear God's low whisper is to hear the message of Christ. Recall at the end of the account of the transfiguration, Christ tells his disciples that he will suffer at the hands of the very humanity that he has created and sustains. He will be killed unjustly, just as was John, John the Baptist, the new Elijah. And so what are we to make of this? Well, perhaps what was spoken to Elijah and that still small voice was the very thing proclaimed to Moses. For the Lord is in his name. We read of Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What is the graciousness of God that abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin? It is Christ. It is Christ willingly suffering the punishment of our each and every evil act, our each and every breach of love, each and every way that we have failed to be from and to God in love, just as the Son is from and to the Father in love. God is a holy God. He's a God of perfect justice, and yet, He's a God of forgiveness. How can this be? How can perfect justice, which requires full punishment for every wrong, be reconciled with perfect mercy, which forgives every wrong? Well, Perfect justice and perfect mercy embrace and are reconciled upon the cross. Where the beams of the cross meet, so too do the greatest act of justice and the greatest act of mercy meet. 
The Son of God became the Son of Man to take upon himself the punishment that perfect justice requires from each of us. He does so that we might receive the mercy and forgiveness of God. That we might receive the name of the Lord proclaimed to Moses. And so the very Son whom holds all things together is revealed to be the very one who also holds perfect justice and perfect mercy together. The very one in whom we were created is the very one in whom we are saved and restored. If we will only look upon Christ with the eyes of true and saving faith, we will find and see the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. We find in the oh, sorry, we we find God in the utmost humility, taking upon himself the great wind and earthquake and fire of that perfect justice. We find him being destroyed in our place. We find God in the utmost humility, bearing his backside to us. We find him bearing the scorn and indignity and mockery of the cross. And so while the disciples collapse in fear, they don't die. Christ tells them, rise and have no fear. Yes, they have reason to fear. They look into Christ's faith and face and they see truth and goodness and beauty itself. They see the very one, the very love that moves the sun and the other stars And they see this as those who have traded truth for falsehood, evil for goodness, the ugliness of sin for the beauty of God. So yes, in the presence of all that they should be and are not, they feel absolutely condemned. In the cave, it was hard to see their stains. But now in the light of Christ, all is perfectly clear. But again... Rise and have no fear. Christ has taken every sin upon himself. And this very light of Christ that reveals our faults will also cleanse us. As John the disciple, the disciple who was there at the transfiguration, as he assures us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So luminous is Christ that at first he appears as darkness. But our eyes must be strengthened. We must learn to see Christ more and more. And there's one very practical way that this works out. One I think that we can all relate to. When the very difficult situations of life attack us, when we get a difficult health diagnosis, When those that we love do things that hurt us deeply. When those that we love die. When we suddenly get devastating financial information. When the trials of life suddenly catch us off guard. We feel as if we are in a fog. We feel as if we are in a cloud. We feel separated from the life we were certain that we were living only yesterday. Everything seems different. All the people around you go on with life as usual. And in the moment, you don't understand how you can ever go back 
to that life. You feel isolated, alone, out of step with all of those regular routines of everyone else. Yes, you are in a fog. We often hear it described like this. And yet, like the disciples, and I say this with trepidation, we are in a bright cloud, a luminous darkness, a shining shadow. What can you do but look to Christ? In that bright darkness, you see him more clearly than than in so-called regular life. In that bright darkness, you pray more. In that bright darkness, you feel your utter dependence upon Him. In that bright darkness, you feel acutely the transitory and precarious and fragile and passing nature of all the things of this world. In that bright cloud, you more clearly see Christ as your only true hope and certain joy. If you are in that fog, if you are in that cloud now, If you are in that bright darkness, please don't waste it. Before the cloud passes and you return to those seemingly regular routines in which we must fight harder to see Christ, focus upon Christ now. Come to know him more deeply and to see him more fully. When the bright cloud descends upon you, When you find yourself in luminous darkness, in the shining shadow, learn to strengthen your eyes to better see the light of Christ, to better see the light that is Christ. But again, even here as the disciples see God, the Son, the Word, the Logos, the sight is still still mediated. It's still God's backside. It's mediated through the human face of Christ. Like Moses, we still wait to look directly upon our triune God. The eyes, the eyes are made for light. But if our eyes look directly at the sun, the sun will destroy the very faculty, the sight of the eyes that actually receives the goodness of the sun's light. In the same way, in our fallen and corrupted and imperfect and non-resurrected state, to look directly upon God will destroy us. At present, to look upon the one for whom we are made would actually unmake us. It would unmake us just like the eyes that have been made for the sun would be unmade by directly gazing upon the sun. But one day, one day, we will. And this is what the Christian tradition calls the beatific vision. Think about what draws you to all the good things in creation. Think about the deepest love experienced in human relationships. Think about the sweetness of the most delicious fruits. Think about the mathematical elegance of the universe. Think about the majesty of the created world. Think about the beauty of the human form. Think about the delight of a job well done. Yet all of this love and sweetness and elegance and majesty and beauty and delight All of this is only a two-dimensional image of the reality of God. God is the very love and sweetness and elegance and majesty and delight that makes these good things in creation have all of these wonderful qualities. As a character in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce explains as he invites an old friend 
and to the joy of Christ. I will bring you to a place where you can taste truth like honey and be embraced by it as a bridegroom. Your thirst shall be quenched. This is what we will one day see, perceive, taste, be embraced by. Recall how this account begins. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. This happens on the seventh day, the day in the creation account that is the day of rest. And this is the day of rest that God himself invites us to one day enter. This rest is our full joy and happiness and flourishing as we enjoy God himself with all of our being. As Augustine tells us, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Not long from now, I promise you, Christ will come again to us, either rousing us from our daily duties or stirring us from the grievous grave by saying, Rise and have no fear. And we will see the sun itself. We will see not just God's backside, but his very face. It will not kill us, for death itself will be no more. Yes, if we look at the sun now, it will blind us. So too will the very face of God. But one day, with our eyes strengthened by the resurrection, we will see God as he is. We will look upon and delight in God, the Son, in goodness and truth and beauty itself, and the very love that moves all things. Blessed, flourishing, truly and eternally happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you that you have shown yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we see him ever more clearly. May you strengthen our eyes so that we can. And Lord, give us hopeful, joyous anticipation for the day that we will look upon you in full and glorious delight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.